Hello, welcome to episode 117 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot doing? Where to start with this one, eh? Well, myself and my wife Lizzie have been busying ourselves with Why Poetry, the Lunar Poetry Podcast anthology, which will be out September 27th in time to celebrate the fourth anniversary of the podcast. I suppose I should seize this moment and remind you that the anthology is available to pre-order from Verve Poetry Press for only £9.99, including free delivery. So get yourself over to their website or follow the link in the episode description. The book charts the history of the podcast in the form of a transcribed conversation between me and friend of the series, Abby Palmer, which weaves its way through 28 poems by former guests. Poets in the book include the likes of Helen Mort, Jane Ye, Mary Jean Chan, Nick McCower, Luke Kennard, Travis Alabanza, and Melissa Lee Houghton. It's a unique lineup of poets, and I honestly don't know where else you'll get a book quite like this one. And proceeds from the book are going toward ensuring the series remains transcribed for as long as possible. As well as the pre-order option we will be exhibiting at the Freeverse Poetry Book and Magazine Fair at Senate House in London, September 22nd, at which we'll have advanced copies available to buy. So if you're coming along to that, do stop by our table and say hello. On to today's episode in which I chat to one of my favourite poets, Andrew McMillan. I met up with Andrew at his home in Manchester at the beginning of July to talk to him about his second full collection of poetry, Playtime, which is out through Jonathan Cape. And in 117 episodes, this is the first time I've met up with a poet to specifically discuss the transition from debut collection to second book. And I found Andrew's reflections on confidence in his writing, audience expectation and reaction, and placing growing demands on readers just fascinating. As with his debut physical Playtime deals with what it is to be a man in general, what it is to be a queer man specifically, and how, as boys, they or we learn about other male bodies. Only this time around, more so, as it were. This collection is a more focused attempt to deal with these themes, and I feel lucky to have spent time with Andrew listening to him explain how he attempted to refocus that gaze. And if you enjoy this conversation or any of our other 116 episodes, then please do spread the word, either on social media or in the fleshy reel every day. It really helps us to reach new listeners. As always, a full transcript of this episode is available over at our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com. Here's Andrew. Martyrdom. Tonight I started walking back to you, Father. It was meant to be a stroll, but then I started walking faster, Father. I started chanting all the names of all the men I ever went to bed with, Father. My thighs were burning and my feet were heavy with blood, but I kept the pace and chants of names up. Father, listed them to the fence posts and the trees and didn't stop and started getting younger, father, 
and walked all night till I was home just a spark in your groin again and told you not to bring me back to life, told you I repented every name and had freed them of me, Father. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, We briefly discussed before that I don't like to request poems from people and it's mainly because I like the surprise. If someone, so I would have chosen that one. And, <laughs> and the surprise is always really nice when uh, a poem that I wanted comes up oh, without good. demanding it. <laughs> um, so firstly, I suppose I should say congratulations on the publication of your second full collection. Thank you. Playtime. Because I haven't had this kind of conversation on the podcast before, it seems natural to just brazenly ask you to give us an insight into what you see as the changes from your first collection physical and into playtime yeah so i mean i started the poem that i just read martyrdom was the first poem that i actually wrote for the book um and i wrote it during a time that i'd gone away to finish the first one and so it's kind of it crosses over in terms of the timeline quite a bit and this is much more about childhood it's much more about kind of early adolescence I guess physical ended up being about me and people like me in my early 20s. And I became much more interested in thinking how it was, how it is that we grow into our kind of sexual selves or our physical selves, as it were. And so these poems, I think, I think physical wasn't really that sexual. People just thought it was because of the cover. Whereas this one is much more explicit. I think it's much more personal. I feel much more vulnerable about it. Um, it strikes me now when I still read from physical a bit that some of the poems are quite general. So they might talk about uh, the bodies of someone or the bodies of men, whereas this is a lot more narrative, I think, and a lot more, it feels a lot more personal, at least in, in some of the startings of some of the poems. It's very interesting to hear you say that because it's always nice to give the the author the chance to set that tone. But yeah. I would I, the few notes that I, I have made for this conversation revolved around the fact that there isn't a definite cut-off point between physical and playtime. Yeah. There seems to be a merging slightly, especially in the first section of playtime. Yeah. And it's really funny to hear um, your view on how you view the different collections of poetry because it seems to me now some of the things that I've seen written about physical actually reflect more what playtime is. It seemed to me where the crossover lay, it seemed to be that you were trying to be more focused on those points and maybe reiterate. I think so, yeah. And it's interesting because I think in many ways, I mean, physical had a kind of, it was received in a way that was utterly kind of unexpected to me and it was kind of, it was a glorious three years with it. And in many ways, I think what happened was there was, there was a react, there was the kind of book and then there was the reaction to the book and those are two separate, things in a way I think or that there was a kind of there's like the book and the imagined book or what people kind of imagined it was and I think it's right that actually a lot of that what was imagined about the first one I've kind of almost carried or tried to take forward into this into this new one and it is a continuation in many ways it's it's almost like a prequel in terms of because it's just it's about a younger self I guess and how did the reaction to physical inform the writing did it did it have any conscious uh, effect on the way you were writing it gave me it gave me a certain confidence to know that 
it it must be all right. I think it just gave me a certain confidence in in the sincerity of it. And so physical came out at a time when it felt like there were there was an emergence of kind of a new sincerity in poetry, which I was really attracted to. So Hannah Lowe and Liz Berry and Helen Mort and this kind of very sincere voice. And I'd done kind of three pamphlets before physical came out. And I remember when the first one came out and I was still at uni and it got this one review that basically said, this is just kind of teenage angst. Why would anybody care about kind of what someone thinks about themselves? It's just kind of too um, emotional. And I really took that to heart, like I think you do with criticism, and just thought, oh, it's not that. I need to be more, I need to be less sincere than it needs to be less honest. And actually, Physical was just the book that I thought, well, this is just what I want to write. And the fact that it it did what it did, I guess, when I began to write again, I knew that that was, it was okay to be kind of writing into that territory, I guess. It kind of gave me permission just to trust it. But I didn't feel any kind of pressure. I feel much easier about this one. I felt a real anxiety about that first book. Actually, yeah, my question was probably yeah. loaded slightly no, towards right. anxious feelings, and, I, and that yeah. wasn't quite what I meant. Also, within that, does physical then free you up to write more uh, definitely in the poems in playtime? I think so, and I mean, I just kind of think like playtime isn't going to win anyone over. So the people that really didn't like physical really hate this one, I think, um, which is fine. And it will be a quieter thing. I think first books have a very certain energy um, to them because it's often a new voice, whereas this one will be quieter and I'm going into it with kind of no expectations about how it might be received, but I feel, I just feel easier about it. I just feel like it will have a readership because of what happened to the first one. So people, whether they like it or not, they'll still buy it, I guess, to a certain extent. And then whatever kind of happens, happens. I think I was talking to Jean Strackland and she sort of said, she had this really interesting thing to me. She said, she's my line manager at work as well in my kind of other life. And she said to me, after the first book, it's just a kind of building building of a life's work. And so some books will be quieter than others or some books will be looked at more than others, but it's just the building of a life's work. And I just thought, oh, that's really, I liked that a lot. And it, it kind of made me calmer, I think, about the whole thing. Yeah. I think actually just going revisiting one point just because it's yeah a nice it's a nice thing to say I suppose but when physical came out I got an excited email from the poet Bobby Parker oh, we'd okay. been chatting a lot and and he was like you have to read physical but it was funny when I got hold of physical finally because of doing the podcast as we were saying earlier my to read list yeah, yeah. is growing and growing and unfortunately the stuff that I want to read for pleasure and not for interviews always takes a back seat. When I finally got around to reading physical, it wasn't the book that Bobby had promised to me. And it wasn't worse or better. It was just a very different book. And it it seemed like, perhaps what I'm trying to get to, it seems like physical could be interpreted a lot more, whereas you seem to be more demanding of the reader with playtime. I think, I'd not thought of it like that, but I think that's really interesting. I think playtime, there's less wiggle room in it. I think that's right. I think it's much more... It's just point, it points directly at some things that are quite uncomfortable and just says, look at this. And there's no way of not, apart from turning the page and not reading the poem, I guess. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, because in my notes and in my reading for this interview, I was trying not to revisit physical too much yeah. because I wanted to focus on playtime. But there were a couple of lines um, 
what have I got written down here? If I can read and talk at the same time. <laughs> Particularly in Strongman, I really loved the image, the, the line, what is masculinity if not taking the weight of a boy and straining it from oneself? Yeah. And there are a few lines like that which demand, which can't be taken in any other way. Yeah, yeah. In physical, but they appear very regularly in playtime, like yeah. these sort of emphatic um, statements. Yeah. I mean, I guess not consciously when I was writing it, but I guess I just feel more secure in my own voice, as it were, or more what I want to say. Um, I've always been attracted to lines like that in poetry that that don't have any simile in them or any metaphor or and are just a kind of almost plain statement of fact. And one of the things I'm really interested in poetry is how bare you can make something, how you can strip every adornment out of it and have it still be kind of poetic. Um, and I love lines like that that kind of just, to me, seem true rather than being beautiful images. Mm. I think also the reason that I mention that is because I always like to think of people that are perhaps getting to the point of publishing a pamphlet or thinking about what what it would be to have a collection come out yeah. and it's important for them i think to to realize that those people that they're maybe emulate trying to emulate or looking up to perhaps aren't as sure in their voice as the reader might think they are oh god you yeah know? and i think it's important to have that conversation as well isn't it about yeah. how your view on your own ability will change over time. And... I think so. And I mean, I think it's interesting because I think when people first start out or before people are published necessarily, that they, I think there's a view that like you would walk, you walk through a kind of magic door and on the other side is just a kind of land of incredibly confident, self-assured people. And actually the more people that you meet, even if they've got eight, nine, ten books, like they're all poets because they're incredibly neurotic and nervous and kind of unsure of themselves. And they use poetry as a way to figure stuff out in the same way we do they're just i think you'll learn more as you go through how to bluff it slightly in public but i think everyone is still just as anxious and nervous and unsure about what they're doing um kind of underneath mm. and this idea of um that i've built up reading playtime about being quite demanding on the reader you seem to be more sort of um definite about the form of the poems as well. Mm. There's a lot more space, almost like you've erased the stage directions, but there seems to be instruction to people how to read these poems now. With that. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, so I mean, the breath space and stuff is just something that developed from the pamphlets through to physical and then through to this. And it is, I think, I like that idea of it instructions for the reader because it is like, I always think of it like scoring a piece of music that you're not you're very rarely in the same room as someone that's going to read the book and so you have to at least hint to them where you think they should pause or where you'd like there to be a kind of moment of reflection and so within that kind of getting rid of all the punctuation and just using these kind of breath space things a way a to make it sound more like natural speech but just to try and give the reader some sort of clue as to where to pause and where to stop and where to keep reading i guess yeah, so recently I spoke to Jane Ye about yeah. this the element of collage or the cut-up element of her poems in which it seems that you can interchange lines. Yeah. And there's something similar going on in playtime, it, although it doesn't feel like you can switch the lines around, but it definitely through the removal of punctuation and through these gap, these breath gaps, if that's a way to put it, gives you the impression that you could start lines in different ways. There yeah. could be a different emphasis on there. It, it, 
although you're demanding I suppose that's also what I'm trying to get at is although it feels like you're demanding something of the reader you are allowing a freedom within that as well to maybe start at different points and revisit uh, scenes I've not thought of that at all but that's a really interesting point I think it makes it quite democratic which I quite like but yeah I've not really thought of that I tend to make a lot of statements um, mainly I'm happy for them to be refuted as well. no that's good <laughs> I think that's where my idea of a more confident speaking voice came from okay. as well, because it in allowing you to go back and maybe start a line halfway through yeah. or, or put the emphasis somewhere else, but re- retaining those spaces seemed a much more confident act. That's interesting. Well, good. I'm glad it seems yeah. more confident. I do feel more confident, but that is really interesting. I like, I like that idea that it moves towards a kind of democratic poetry in a way, which is really interesting. As an aside, I will say as well that Jane was one of the first ever poets that I read kind of properly. And her first collection has this incredible line in it that says something like, it's like da-da-da-da-da-da, extinct in geological time. It's just this kind of perfect ending to a poem. And it's just one of the first kind of contemporary poetry books I ever read. And I just think she's fantastic. Uh, Who was I talking to about this recently? Was it Jane? I'm so bad at remembering who I had conversations with. But it was basically that I was... I, I don't normally go in for this idea that every poem has to end on a killer line. But then this poet I was talking to sort of disproved that because every poem did end on a really <laughs> great line and it worked. But I think take, picking out on those those words and those um, those lines and those statements that I'd mentioned earlier about yeah. being in physical and more often in playtime, it's interesting that you seem to have bumped those sort of lines with that that weight you've bumped them up further into the poem yeah like i I like the idea that poem i think particularly because there's quite a lot of white space in the books just kind of even visually on the page the poems often end quite quietly and i quite like that um i like that each poem kind of might fail slightly and not quite get towards where it wants to be so there has to be another poem that kind of tries again I mean, the poet that I was always that I read the first ever poet that I really read properly was Philip Larkin, who has this great who I know is very unfashionable these days, but has this great ability to just kind of go da 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 da, and here's the meaning of life. In his kind of final lines, they just leap off somewhere. Um, and Matt Doherty has that same quality, and I always wanted that. I wanted to try and somehow emulate that. I think to have that kind of confidence or swagger to just kind of not to undercut a poem with kind of humour or kind of bathos somehow, but just to kind of go, just to kind of be confident enough to step off the end of the pier somehow and go, this is this is the meaning of life, or this is why I've shown you it. And I just think moving them up sometimes into the body of the poem just switches it up slightly. It was Caroline Bird. That's who I was talking to about. She's full of wisdom. They, yeah, yeah, she should have my job, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, in these days of prohibition, it was a conscious effort to not give the reader any room to move at yeah, the end yeah, of yeah. each poem and it was it was a conscious decision for the whole collection and i suppose that's what interests me is is not necessarily the difference but what your what the writer's motivation is for that obviously this doesn't happen in every single poem yeah. but in the poems in which you do bump up what might be a final line in some other poems up into it is that for your benefit or is that for the reader i mean i guess it comes from a I think it probably comes from a conscious decision to stay in the poem for longer than I should. 
which I think is really important. So I think, like, when I was judging the National last year, like 15,000 poems, however many it was, a lot of which were very, very good, but just really kind of plausible, because they end on what should be the end line, and they're watertight, and they've been edited to death, and they're fantastically brilliant, but they just don't, they don't live with you afterwards. And it's because... It's for many different reasons, but one of the reasons is because the poet hasn't sat in the poem for long enough. They've got out too quickly or they've got out as quickly as they could because the subject made them uncomfortable. And I think more and more I'm just trying to stay in it and just keep writing. And even just kind of notes or just kind of phrases longhand after the poem feels like it should have finished to see actually, to try and surprise myself. And then I think the reader might be more interested in it. So not knowing where the poem's going to end up when it starts. So actually maybe that middle line that feels quite strong or is quite direct might be where I know the poem's kind of going initially, but then it's about you want to sit in it for a bit longer and see actually what you really want to say. And that's what makes it interesting to me, kind of not really knowing what the poems are going to be about until they come out or until it goes off in a weird direction. That's a very interesting point, actually, and, and it and it does tie neatly with how I was reading Caroline's latest yeah. collection, in that I struggle or I sort of rail against a little this sort of received wisdom that you have to edit in a certain way and cut down and cut down and make something neat. And a lot of it does actually. It's funny that you mentioned it, judging a competition because a lot of it feeds into that mm. idea that a person may only see one poem of yours and yeah. it has to be neat and it has to be tidy what appeals to me normally is work that just continues yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. subscribe to that but i think what surprised me about liking caroline's was that she did it in order for the for the poems to end awkwardly yeah. and not neatly and i really like that taking that received wisdom of of making something very short and very sharp and very neat but making it uncomfortable to yeah. read and to end on i think that's so interesting and i think I mean, Bobby, who you mentioned earlier, would be another really good example, I think, where the poems feel like they have a kind of extension beyond where another poet would stop. And it's just really important, I think, to... That I, don't, I don't really think there's any point, and nor can I do it at all, to sit down and write a poem. I go, I'm going to write a 20-line poem about this, and it will end with this line, and I write it. And it cause I, I think that leads to very plausible but quite dull poetry that doesn't surprise me so it won't surprise a reader it doesn't move me so it won't move a reader whereas what you see like in days of prohibition which is such a great book it's such a good book is that like you say that ability to i'm always surprised by the end of the poem and mark doty's poems are the same quality where you get to the end and you think how on earth have we ended up there because we started there and we've ended up somewhere utterly incongruous to that but it makes sense and i think that can i don't think that can be engineered beforehand i think that can only come from sitting and just writing and writing and writing and then maybe cutting a lot of that out and then the other half of that is it then has to be edited to make it tight again so otherwise it's just too baggy and too kind of messy but that the editing shouldn't come in too early before the poem knows what it wants to be about really there's no rush with it i think there's a danger isn't there with that sort of uh almost stereotypical view of editing in that you know what a poem should be before you start yeah. and then what like what will you create what what possibly could come out if you've got an idea of what the finished object should be i mean that's what i've always kind of wondered and i think 
I mean, some people can, and it must be an easy way to write, I guess, wouldn't it? To sit down and go, right, I know what I'm writing now, it's going to be this. And then just kind of dash it out. But any time I've ever, ever tried to do that, it's just not worked. Or it's led to something that hasn't made it, that I would never show to anyone. It's never made it to the light of day. It's just become an exercise or something to kind of be harvested from later. So before we get on to, we're going to take a second reading in a moment and yeah. move on, on to talking more specifically about playtime. Did you feel the mechanics of your writing changing between the two collections at all? But uh, This might be a difficult one to, because we've already established that there's quite an overlap between the yeah. two. But There was a definite, there was a moment when I really, really struggled. I'd written that martyrdom poem that I read out before, um, which kind of opens the book. And then for some, I don't know why, but I got it in my head that the next thing that I did had to be radically different. And so I really kind of, I went down weird roads. Like I decided I was going to write a sequence of historical sonnets about women. They were terrible, as one might imagine. And then, and I thought, I'm going to do X or Y, I'm going to do X. And just kind of floundering and floundering and floundering. And luckily I've got a really good relationship with my editor, so I can kind of send him stuff, um, Robin Robertson at Cape, as I'm kind of going along and just say, look, I'm, I'm lost kind of what's happening and he just said this really helpful thing to me he said look it will be different because you're a different person than you were three years ago you, you're going to write new stuff but you have your sensibility so just don't panic and that was so freeing and I came home and I think immediately wrote a couple of poems that I would have been scared to write before because I felt like they were too similar and so I went through this phase of really trying to radically change and realized well actually I still want to say the same things. It will just shift naturally because I'm going to shift naturally. I think with this one, there was a definite attempt or trying to kind of focus in on specific moments which there hadn't been in the first one. So the first one was more kind of general memories, whereas this second book was definitely this happened at this day and I'll write about that or this particular incident, which involved this time around much more sitting in very, very uncomfortable places for quite a long time which I don't advise as a writing technique, ethically. But um, So I think this one was much more kind of focused in on just some things would occur to me every so, oh, God, I remember that, or I remember when that happened. And then I would just sit with that memory for quite a while and see what came. Whereas, again, the first one was much more taking the experience of me in Manchester in my early 20s and trying to somehow generally capture that, whereas this one feels much more kind of tightly focused, I guess. I wrote much... I wrote. I mean, it's, it's only three years, but I, th- I feel like I wrote this one much slower. All the individual poems came individually rather than in kind of clumps like they sometimes did with physical, I think. And also just that I'd never had... The panic really was that Cape do not that many poetry books a year. And so you have to sign the contract so they can officially put you into the kind of schedule and so when I'd signed the contract for physical it was a book so it was like me giving over a product and me signing a contract and that kind of made sense logically whereas this one was really signing a contract on maybe five or six poems which just utterly freaked me out and there was no rush with it it could have come out next year the year after there was no kind of rushing me into it but that I think just having nothing starting again you hand over you know first books oftentimes most of physical was written in three or four years it wasn't a kind of lot of juvenilia and stuff like that crammed into it, but it's the kind of life's accumulation of stuff that you've got to play with, whereas suddenly with the second one, there's nothing. 
And I had that one poem that I'd written when I was finishing the first one and I didn't know what to... I'd never had to do that before and I guess it was just learning how to do it again or seeing if I even could do it again or thinking, well, if it is only this first book, maybe that's enough. Mm. Um, But it did come back. It's amazing how no achievement will prepare you for the next step, isn't it? You know, it doesn't really matter what you've done before. If you've suddenly then got to produce something again i I find it very much with the podcast if i I get a lot of feedback about a particular episode it does nothing but scare the life out of me about the next one but i'll suddenly forget how to talk to people or or it won't flow or i won't edit it correctly that's that's the thing i think every poem i mean people have said this much more eloquently but every time you write a poem you then somehow immediately forget how to do it you have to learn again how to do it and i mean Maybe we were going to talk about this later on, but the whole kind of pri- or maybe not, but the whole kind of prize culture thing is such a weird thing anyway, because it comes in or did for me, and I had you know it was fantastic. It comes in such peaks and troughs, so that for like like with the Guardian thing, that's exciting for like two weeks, but then you have to come home and empty the dishwasher. Like it's not life changing in the way that winning an Oscar would be in a kind of other art form or winning the Turner Prize. It, it doesn't kind of really shift anything and being shortlisted but then not winning is a weird thing in itself because there's a lot of hype leading up to it and then you're always really happy for the person that wins and then I remember after one of them me and my boyfriend just went to the cinema to see a Helen Mirren film the kind of afternoon because we'd had the award ceremony we'd kind of clapped who'd won and then we just were like oh let's just go to the cinema and there's kind of like so it's a very weird kind of intense bubble for sort of four or five minutes and then you have to leave it thankfully because it's an odd space to occupy I think you just have to put all that aside when you write like you can't I think it would send you mad if you kind of tried to write towards prizes or kind of held in your head what even anyone was going to think of it I suppose all prize giving bodies because of the way that they work automatically focus on a on a very unnatural distillation of any point of your writing career mm. as well, don't they? They because they will have their arbitrary dates that you're allowed to have work published within, and uh, yeah. uh, to, for them to be uh, part of uh, the shortlist. So it's not it's not you that gets to dictate what gets what gets read and how it gets read. Is it? Is- That's the thing I think, and you know, it's interesting. Say, me and Sarah Howe's book came out in the same year, but we were on different years of our shortlist which is just weird because it was kind of mid-year to mid-year for the Sunday Times one, I think it was. And that's kind of odd in itself. I mean, the be- genuinely, the best thing prizes can do, or the best thing they did for me, is just allow me to meet people that I now feel really close to, so like Max Porter, because Grief is a Thing with Feathers came out in the same year, or Jesse Greengrass, um, whose short storybook was out that year. And Sarah and Matthew Siegel from American people like that, you just you become to feel very close to certain people because it's such an intense time that you kind of thrown together in um, and no one remembers I've been introduced as having won stuff I was never shortlisted for being shortlisted for stuff that I won like just nobody really remembers which I also find quite comforting in the grand scheme of things yeah it just doesn't matter <laughs> yeah it's um, it's a very odd thing like, I've spoken to a few people about prizes and but I always try to allow people to bring that up themselves because I've always made a point that I don't invite people on that have won anything yeah, because yeah. It's, that's out of my control yeah. it's out of 
it has nothing to do with the, the reasons I would want to speak to yeah, anyone. Yeah. And it's such an arbitrary thing as well. And, you know, because who decides? And and uh, having been on both sides of it, so having judged stuff, you realise how, how, not how arbitrary it is, because everything that I've judged, I think the winners were utterly deserved, but how much it's about that conversation in that room or how much it's about the negotiation and the conversation around justifying why we like something and not something else or actually why it should be this and not that. And so having been on kind of both sides of that, it is so much of it is just look or about who the judges are or what mood they wake up in that morning or what they decided they should like or support. Yeah, I think it's important, isn't it, to point out that some that the act is arbitrary even though the choice is very, very considered. You know, by saying the process is arbitrary is not questioning the ethics of the judges in any way. You know, no. it's just only a very small number of any poems or collections could get nominated for anything. That's the you thing. Know, you, can't, you, know, you can't actually give a very fair overview, I don't think. Of... No, and I mean, you're not comparing like for like no. is the other thing. So it's not like you've asked five people to draw a picture of a house and you're going to judge the person that looks most like a house. You're kind of judging wildly different things against each other. So in the end, you can only think, say like with the national, you can only really think, did this has this poem done what it wanted to do as well as it could have done? And that's the only way to judge stuff really because you can't really put two utterly different poems up against each other and go which is better because what does that even mean and also that means different things to every single person and it's a shame because i think on both sides kind of prize culture and poetry occupy like people get very either het up about it or put a lot of weight on it or put a lot of disappointment onto it and all you want is for people to be reading your stuff and to be reading other stuff reading good stuff as well yeah um but yeah, that was an answer to a question you didn't ask, wasn't it? I'm sorry. No, but it's good when things <laughs> go that way. It means then uh, I don't have to think as much, which is great. <laughs> After that slight but very interesting tangent into prize giving and judging, we'll take a second reading and then... Um, I was going to say get back to my notes, but my notes don't make any sense. We'll get back to something else. But... <laughs> get back to something. I'll read this poem that I wasn't going to read, but I keep forgetting it's in the book. So it's the poem that... I'm most nervous about in the book because it's about something that I think very, very few people know about me, even some of my very close friends. And and so every time I pick this book up, I remember that I, I put it in and that you can't kind of take it back now because it's been printed. Um, so Transplant, that's on page 19. Transplant. The sound of hair being ripped out reminded me of Velcro shoes being hastily removed. I hadn't realised it possible that I might grow into kinder ownership of my own looks, that I could one day have been fine with baldness. But it seemed to me at 17 that I was being unmanned and that my unlived youth was already receding. So I paid a doctor thousands to take a strip of hair from the back of my head, pull out each follicle and put them into the front to give me the line I thought would make me happy and stitch the skin on the back of the skull together, leaving me with this grimace, this equator, this scar that catches the cold weather, holds it deep inside, reminder of my vanity, tideline of canute, Tattoo of the time I couldn't live. 
with what I was becoming. Thank you. First time I've ever read that out loud. Really? Yeah, it's it does feel as though that stands alone somewhat in playtime, but it connects a lot of ideas. Yeah, and it actually it feels like it. Perhaps even more so than martyrdom, it feels like it connects playtime to physical in that what is it to be a man? What is masculinity? What is it to go from being a boy or an adolescent and to being a man? But what where I like that it links into playtime is that playtime seems to be much more about how it is to interact with other men and not men in a general Mm. sense because there are definite men you are interacting with individual men within playtime and those acts those interactions can do nothing but raise ideas of your own vanity yeah and whether whether you are not vain or whether you are very vain or 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 how much you read into those ideas of attraction and i think that's a really um you seem the most bare in that in a lot of ways that genuinely is the point that i feel most not worried about that's not the right word that's the point i feel most vulnerable about. yeah that i genuinely have to remind myself that it's in the book because i just kind of block it out i think yeah because there are many poems within playtime which could be considered much more intimate yeah or much more bearing but yeah. that for whatever reason yeah that's yeah. just the one that i feel but then it's going to be in the book i think it's going to be online at grant as well so i mean it's going to be out in the world people are going to see it but yeah first time for everybody out loud Except to myself. It's odd, isn't it, though, as well, because there are there are always these small elements about our own personality and our experiences that are far more embarrassing to us yeah. and would not seem... That poem probably won't mean much to many other <laughs> yeah, people yeah, yeah. in terms of... They won't feel that um, yeah. an- anxiety yeah, that yeah. you feel towards it. No, it's true. And I think... Like, say, there's a poem in the first book called Urination, which is just about... It starts off with this fear of being scared of bumping someone in a urinal. And it just kind of started off with me kind of being having that kind of social anxiety and writing that down. And then reading it out to a lot of people and realising that, oh, actually, that's quite a lot of men are scared of that, even if they don't talk about it. And so it came to me to think of, like, stand-up comedy works on this principle that I will say something and it'll be funny because you'll recognise it but have never articulated it. So kind of anecdotal, observational comedy. And oftentimes poetry works like that as well to a certain extent where kind of I will point at something and go look this is what happened to me and I'm ashamed of it and even if people can't relate to the direct experience they can see themselves in that kind of discomfort I guess there's um I can't remember there's like a, a an actual study into men's behavior at urinals and how odd it is if you walk into a into a public bathroom and there are three urinals and one man is standing in the middle yeah because it's socially unacceptable (laughs) to do that because there is so much um pressure on how you behave in that moment yeah yeah. when you're exposing yourself and uh expelling waste from yourself and and uh, all that comes with that i think that's what i more and more was interested in this idea of how How is it that boys find out about each other's bodies? Girls, it seems to me, from a kind of naive, non-kind of intelligent point of view, seems to me that they're much easier with each other's bodies. Girls will hold hands in school. Girls will kind of help each other get changed or choose outfits. And kind of boys don't do that. And so the only way they really touch each other's bodies is through contact support or through fighting. 
sat next to these two blokes on the train the other day, I think I tweeted it, and it was this extraordinary thing where he'd sent his four-year-old son to learn mixed martial arts and, like, boxing and fighting, and he said, oh, he's walking around now with his kind of fists up near his chin. And I just thought, like, what is, what is happening to kind of men in the world that they feel that that is what they had to do? That the girls would go to Bali, but the boys would learn at four years old to fight each other. And it just struck me as this extraordinary thing that he was really kind of very proud of. Um, but yeah, I'm, just, I'm more and more interested in the ways that boys will learn about each other's bodies, because they do. But oftentimes it's kind of in secret, or quite clandestine, I think. To lead on from that, actually, reading Playtime yeah. and the poems MMA, watching MMA and Clearance and phone phone boxes yeah. the, the way in which men interact like you're saying in mm. general in general and how they learn about each other's bodies it re- the images that kept coming up into my mind were front the paintings of francis bacon yeah. and the images that he used to base his which for people who don't know he used a lot of um the, the early photographic and film studies of movement which included men almost naked wrestling yeah yeah and how he believes that that most reflected his attraction and his learning how to be physical with other men yeah. was because it had to be done through this sort of pseudo-aggressive yeah. um well not even pseudo a lot of times it was playing out aggressive as well because there had to be that quote-unquote manly act first yeah, in yeah. terms of being aggressive and sort of attacking each other before you were allowed to be intimate I, those francis bacon <clears throat> the um the photographs that he had done in his study um or in the studio when the kind of blokes are wrestling. They've been really important for me. They're kind of a really inter- important touchstone, actually. Just in term- And that whole idea, I think, has been really important to me, through physical and through this book as well. I think it was definitely reading your poem, Watching MMA, yeah. was where suddenly I made that connection, in that the poem opens with describing the two fighters as sort of just being any two drunks outside of a yeah, pub yeah. having a scrap. And then is the is it the final line like lovers reuniting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it, it was that moment that made me think, oh, that that's what was sort of eating away at the back of my mind. I couldn't work out what I was trying to make the connection with. Then on one level, like it seems to me that MMA is just the gayest thing ever, isn't it? <laughs> like, and I yeah. love this paradox. It's it's incredibly hyper masculine thing. But any time I've ever kind of watched it. It's more so than boxing, which seems to me to be two blokes kind of stood punching each other. Mixed martial arts, because it's oftentimes about kind of grappling and about kind of holds, tends to be very nearly naked men just rolling about on top of each other, oftentimes for quite a long time. Which, I, it, it just strikes me as incredibly homoerotic in a way that I find fascinating because it's on that intersection between violence and sex, which is kind of what I'm really interested in. There's a great quote, and I forget who said it, that sex often looks and sounds like murder. And I'm really interested in that that intersection. And so actually, I guess one of the new things in the new book is pursuing that much more through a couple of the poems, that kind of the more violent aspect of it. I suppose there's that element and that question as well is, uh, as a man, what do you need to experience before you can submit yeah. to another man yeah. and that is obviously that's the whole part of the central aspect of MMA is yeah. getting physically forcing someone to submit yeah yeah and then all that is missing is what happens after it's what the, happens the, after what, and after I find that really interesting there's this great I'll pause for a moment while yeah, I sure. pull it out 
brought this, this. I was just reading. I was just reading Terence Hayes' new book, which is just astonishing that Penguin have just done this American sonnets, and there's this great line. Again, we were talking about final lines. Sorry, this doesn't make good podcast listen at all, but I'm just going to find it. Um, I can't speak for you, but men like me who have never made love to a man will always be somewhere in the folds of our longing ashamed of it. And I just thought, God, that's interesting because that's coming from a different point of view. That's coming from a kind of heterosexual point of view. But it it just struck me as such a beautiful line. I mean, it's such a good book, that. Um, American Sonnets to My Past and Future Assassin. I've seen. I've been lucky enough to see him read some of those. Oh, They're really? Really fantastic. Yeah, I saw him um, at an event in... It was part of the um, the Golden Shovel. Anthology oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter Kahn and uh, Patricia Smith was yeah. there as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was really amazing to watch him. They're so... Um, Again, it's sort of almost hypocritical of me to, after rallying against that kind of short, sharp, and um, pointed writing. He does such such a great example of what that, that can provide. Yeah. And I suppose going on from that idea of what it is to submit, the pride that men and boys are taught to take in their battle scars or their bruises, and that then led me on to thinking about your poem Phone Box in which it describes the contact between yourself and another person mm. and because they're soaking wet from the rain, the traces that they've left on yeah. you. And it's really interesting exploration into... I suppose that took me back to physical and that idea of what is masculinity if not straining the boy away from you. Yeah. And then as young men, we spend years and years and years pushing the boy away. And then what it is then to allow a man yeah. towards you in that contact. A secret is that that's the only poem in the book that's entirely made up. Yeah. Um, I just invented that one. Um, it's far more image laden, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, comes from, yeah, because it, it, it didn't happen to me, so I had to make it a poem. But um, yeah, I am, I'm interested in what happens when bodies have to, in, when bodies collide with each other. That it seems that when bodies are just put in front of each other or forced to interact with each other, especially strangers' bodies, I'm just fascinated by what that what that does to people and kind of what happens. I think, and it's at the it's the root cause of everything that we're living through at the minute. So, kind of the rise of Trump and the rise of a kind of alt right and a kind of an exposing of people like Harvey Weinstein who have been behaving appallingly for kind of years. It's at a root of a kind of toxic masculinity, which is learned and people aren't born with it. It's the kind of learned behaviour from society. And I'm just really interested in where that comes from, I think. Or And then if you learn where it comes from, how do we then begin to solve it? Yeah, that, that idea of toxic masculinity, I did make a note about that as well. There are um, one scene or one theme that arises through a few poems are, is the idea of going for blood tests. Yeah. And this idea of, I think it struck a chord with me because I, I used to take lithium. So I had to okay. have um, blood tests every three months. And lithium, for those who don't know, is a poison. And you're basically waiting to find out that the poison has taken too much of an effect on your body and then you have to stop you have to take action or you stop taking it and i think it was through that then i started to and you're talking about this idea of finding the root sometimes it seems as though men are just waiting for something to be the bad whatever is that's toxic within them they're waiting for it to be extracted rather than 
to be looking for it yeah. themselves. I think so, because we're told that we men, I mean, not it's different for gay men, I think, and that's a whole other conversation, but I think that for certain men, they're told that they shouldn't look for it, that it would that they can't be vulnerable. And it seems to me that we've abandoned our young men to pornography, that there's very little, I know this is changing, but certainly when I was in school, there was no adequate sex education, for not even for straight people, let alone for LGBT people. And that if we are abandoning the kind of responsibility of sex education to pornography, how can we then be surprised when young men turn around and expect certain things of women or expect women to behave a certain way or expect their own bodies to look a certain way because they're being taught a false ideal that's incredibly violent and incredibly misogynistic. I'm not anti-porn in any way, but if we're not backing it up with proper sex education, we're going to turn out a generation of young men who will have utterly, utterly unrealistic expectations and ideas about what sex or intimacy or love should be. Um, and we're, as a society utterly failing to properly educate and prepare young people for what their bodies are going to do anyway. They're just not going to do it safely. It is very worrying, I think, in that it seems as though, even though the education system seems to be picking up the slack and saying we yeah. need more sex education, it seems to be reflecting a, a, a culture that came that wasn't so influenced by pornography you know it seems like quite a an old-fashioned view now of what that means i think so and it, it worries me that again i'm not all you know i've written about pornography i'm not anti-porn at all but it's it would worry me that young 12 or 13 year olds have access to smartphones have access to the internet i could sort of find out about being gay in a very kind of benign way and kind of talk to other young innocent people online and then start going out when I was 16 and kind of figure it out for myself if you just type in something into google and in two clicks find something that's incredibly violent or looks very horrific because you don't understand what it what it is that you're looking at and then become scared I think that's really dangerous I mean the whole the entire of my sex education was them putting on a video in school and the only thing I remember of it is it said when a man becomes sexually aroused he might become flustered and want to take his jumper off. And that's all it said. Um, and I found that to be mostly true throughout my life, but that doesn't in any way adequately prepare you for no. the real world. And that's failing particularly, I think, young queer kids. Because the thing about, the more that I think about this, the thing about even if sex education fails heterosexual kids, they'll mostly be able to look around and see examples in older siblings or in their family or just in wider society if it fails young queer kids to that extent and they can't look around and see other examples, then they just become lost. It took me so long to even... I didn't even know th what that word meant. I didn't know that word, what that word gay meant until I was like 14 or 15. And then I look back and go, oh, actually, a lot of these poems are, well, I knew when I was seven or I knew when I was eight, but I just didn't have a language for it. And, and that worries me a lot as well. But I think that's what's beginning to shift. Uh, yeah, and I think that's what's so important with the kinds of writing that is getting published now and there seems to be so because well i suppose following on from what you're just saying there even as as a heterosexual adolescent even if you're not getting sex sex education you can look to the media for ideas of what romance is and what yeah. intimacy is but as a, a young queer kid you're not going to see that in many places and i was i was trying to um there's a bit of an age difference between myself and my wife 
and she doesn't remember the series this life. Okay. And it was the first time that I'd seen any intimacy between two men. And there was there were these elements of um, sort of shame, and it was it seemed yeah. quite an aggressive act at times. But then it seemed to go through those emotions, and it was actually the first time. But then I can't remember seeing anything like that again for years, yeah. you know. And it's so unusual to actually see these. And this is why I think it's so important that um, literature is, yeah. or there's more chances within literature, not just in poetry, but that these stories can be told. Yeah, because then at least. Within in private or through libraries, young people yeah. can, or not even just young people, but people can actually go out and try and find these more realistic stories about. And this is why I really what I love so much about playtime is this idea that it, it it confronts this idea of violence that leads up to intimacy or violence that results from shame through that. But it also yeah. then tries to give a more realistic view of what it, that it isn't always that it isn't always that stereotype. Yeah. And I thought, I got excited walking into Waterstones. I was working, I think I was working up in Newcastle line. I went into their Waterstones and bought um, Richard Scott's book. And I just, I had this moment when I thought, God, even four or five years ago or 10 years ago, when I was first starting to kind of shop for poetry, that there weren't those kind of books on the shelves. This, and, and it was such a, it felt like such an exciting moment to be able to walk into a shop and buy that as a book. And I just had a real moment of thinking, God, we've we've come a long way very quickly. There's still a lot of work to do in terms of representation, I think. But the fact that a book like that will be on the, because it's by Faber, so it'll be on the tables yes, and it'll yeah, be yeah. kind of facing outwards and things like that. And it'll be unashamedly about what it's about. It felt like such an important moment. And I just, I, it, it really struck me when I was just kind of buying it, how it, Five years ago, it didn't look like that on the shelves. You wouldn't have found those kind of books by these young queer poets. Where it feels like we're in a moment that feels really interesting um, at the minute with Daenerys and Ocean as well, but from our own kind of homegrown talent as well. Yeah, because I always sort of reject this idea of like the big publishers. Yeah. I've not always been a fan of the way they've operated, but when they do pick up a title like that, and Richard Scott Soho is absolutely brilliant. And as you're saying, it, it does so much because automatically as you're saying if it's a faber book it's then stood up on on a plinth on its own it's not just slid into the bookcase yeah and and that's important i think um and it's a great book it's just a great book we'll finish with one point just before because it's i try not to center myself in any of these conversations and i've tried over what is nearly four years now when i was first reading playtime and then was reflecting on what it meant in context, put it in context of being a second collection and following on from physical. Yeah. I was actually finding it quite hard to make notes, okay. and I was surprised because I really loved both collections, and I I felt like it was really easy to engage with them. But I was wondering whether whether there was something in me, and going back to this conditioning as a boy and an adolescent, whether there was something within me that was stopping me from engaging, because I found it, I found there was almost a block in my mind that was it wasn't allowing me to write notes or write questions. Because if I was writing questions about these, they they felt too close to my own experiences. That's interesting. And I don't know whether you've had much feedback from people about how they've read the poems, or that's interesting. I didn't like, for example, just as a very, very, it wasn't easy to read and contemplate these ideas of how close um, 
uh, libido and violence and grief are all yeah. in, intertwined. That, for example, that was a yeah. really hard thing to to try and disengage with in order to think about the listener and think yeah, about yeah, the conversation. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, it's not been... Um, you're one of the first kind of people that's had it, that's not seen it before. So, I mean, the people, the people that have had copies are the people that kind of helped me through the various editions of the manuscript. It's interesting, there are poems that I find myself not reading out to audiences. And so one of them is the transplant poem, but I think that's for different reasons. There's the kind of sequence of, it's not going to sell the book at all, is it? There's a kind of sequence of masturbation poems in there, only because it, it's about kind of finding out about one's own body and kind of how we go through that. Someone who I won't name very funnily said that the sequence should be called Wanks for the Memories. <laughs> It's very funny. Um, and now I wish I'd called the book that, but I didn't. But I find myself not reading those for an audience because I almost think like um, maybe I'm still slightly uncomfortable with some of those or some of those ideas. Um, and then sharing them with an audience kind of publicly feels quite odd. But in terms of feedback, again, I think it's that idea of, I mean, oftentimes... I've been doing running a few workshops recently. I did one with Caroline, in fact, a week where we talked a lot about truth and daring in poetry. And one of the things that it's kind of struck me is that women will get called confessional and men will get called brave. And so that's just a kind of gendered reaction to how we kind of deal with this kind of poetry. I was influenced a lot by people like Sharon Olds. And so kind of in that quote-unquote confessional slash apparently personal, whatever it's kind of called, vein. But the only real point of that kind of poetry is to... You know, if I was writing about nature, I'd show you a tree because I think that tree says something about the beauty of creation or whatever I'm kind of interested in. And the only reason to kind of show stuff about yourself is because you think it can say something about something bigger. And so otherwise it's just a diary entry or it's just a kind of blog post. It's not a poem. And so I guess with everything that I've been writing or trying to think about, it might feel like it is just kind of metaphorically masturbatory, that it is just kind of about me, but really the kind of idea is to go, well, this is this, because I think it says something about intimacy or it says something about this. And I guess almost like that urination poem we were talking about, you you have to try and put yourself on the line and kind of say, I think it's this. And then other people generally will look at it and say, oh, actually, no, it is. That's what it feels like. So there was a poem that was on... I put on Twitter a few weeks ago, there's one from the book that's about when I had um, an eating disorder when I was kind of younger. And a couple of people got in touch with me kind of privately and just said, no, actually, this is what it feels like, or this is, that that felt true or that felt interesting, um, which was nice because they could see themselves within that thing that I was trying to show them, I guess. But, you know, the book's not out in the world yet. It will be by the time this goes out. So I might be in hiding, Um it, it might have gone horribly wrong, but um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, I find it interesting that there are poems that I still feel too uncomfortable to read out to audiences because I just don't think, I don't know. It's, I think it's I think it's one thing to have it in a book. I think it's one thing to have someone, to have a bloke stood in front of you reading something at you. I think that changes it. And readings are always about the audience and never the person that's reading it. So my job isn't just to inflict the poems on them and so I think there's some that will probably only ever have a life in the book and maybe the masturbation suite 
he's one of those kind of things. Do you know, it's really interesting. It's it's connected a lot of things in my mind, and I think because I don't have a physical book, I haven't yeah. been published in that way. The only way that I currently share work is to do a reading, yeah. and I think I was reading things things in playtime and connecting with them very strongly, but feeling like I could never write that because I could never read it out. Yeah, yeah. Really fascinating to hear about how some of your some of these poems may only ever exist on the page. Yeah. And for people to read them privately or within groups or whatever, but it's not something that you would It's re- interesting to hear you talk of not wanting to inflict certain things on audiences. I think so, and I think it's just about being you have to be aware of your own position. I mean, there's a whole other conversation about kind of poets that doing readings, and I always think my job is to not entertain as in make people laugh, but you're, it's the it's about the audience. It's not about you, which I think is really important. But also just being aware of the position of you stood on stage as a man reading some. Why would you want to do that to an audience that just because the demographics of poetry is going to be predominantly women and probably predominantly middle-aged women? Like, why would they want to stand there while a 29-year-old bloke stands on stage and reads a sequence of masturbation poems like they can look at them in their own time if they want to or not but I think part of it's about giving them the choice and more and more I'm interested in if I was straight and I'd wrote these poems would that change the reception of them when I'm 70 if I'm god willing still asked to do an occasional reading do I read them and that changes them is that weird if I read urination and things like that like I'm fascinated by who has permission to be publicly intimate as well. Um, and back to the idea of, women, of men being brave and women just being confessional as a way of kind of marginalising their voices. I think the whole idea about who gets permission to say what and how we receive it is really interesting. And when I am a lot older and I reread some of these poems out, that will change. That By their nature, that will change them because they feel very embodied in, in me and how I present them. Um, and I don't. That's not an. There's not an answer in that. I guess I'm. Just, I'm more and more interested in the idea of the power of the poem embodied in the person at the age that they are, or the kind of person that they are, and what that does to them then, publicly, kind of through someone's life. Whether I'll look back on these in thirty years and be like, oh God, really, or whether kind of like these will seem tame, and it'll just be a kind of constant progression of kind of radical self-disclosure somehow i don't know like i suppose you just have to make sure that you go on some sort of tour with richard scott that'd be great and then yeah and then um (laughs) if you go on after him and it will be fine it'll be fine won't it i'll always just seem vanilla yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) you can prep the audiences (laughs) um i think we're running out of time now so we're going to finish on a final poem but just to say that as we were saying, at time of recording, the playtime is not out, but as you're listening, it will be available to buy. And it's uh, published by Jonathan Cape. Before the poem, I just want to thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fascinating talking. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. No so coming up to the Northern Powerhouse. <laughs> oh, yeah, we we're in Manchester. Yeah, we're in Manchester. Yeah, yeah. You can hear the Mancunian wind. <laughs> um. I'll read, I guess just because it came up in conversation, actually, the um, poem about my eating disorder. Um, so the official statistics would be that 1.6% of men will have eating disorders. I would say that the 
percentage would be much higher if we took in kind of other forms of body dysmorphia, including kind of steroid abuse at the gym and things like that. But the official statistics would be 1.6. And so what 1.6% of young men know, to get the body of their favourite sports star, they must starve themselves. That the muscles are there already if they could only get at them. That the thing to do is eat less and replace meals with water so that they bloat and then feel their insides flushing out. That the stomach will expand and shrink back like a gas holder in a former industrial town. That once the body has burned off all its fat, it will start on muscle. That more exercise just gives more energy for the body to eat itself alive. That they can forget what it's like to stand without feeling dizzy. That their eyesight can fail. That their salad can be carried in smaller and smaller Tupperware boxes. That the doctor will be forced to ban the gym. Will deliver his prognosis. That they will end up in the car park of the doctors with their mum. Saying, imagine a child of mine malnourished. Hello. You stuck around to the end. That means it's biscuit time. That was the wonderful Andrew McMillan. If you can afford to do so, I really do recommend buying Andrew's books. Or if you're able, requesting them at your local library. They are stunning. For those of you that don't know, we have an accompanying podcast edited by my wife Lizzie called A Poem A Week, in which she publishes, you guessed it, A Poem A Week. As with this podcast, you can download and subscribe via all the major podcast apps. One more reminder that our upcoming anthology Why Poetry is available to pre-order from Verve Poetry Press featuring poems by the likes of Donald Chegwin, Nadia Drews, Keith Jarrett. Joe Dunthorne, Rishi Dastadar, Zaina Hashembeck, and Susanna Dickey. I didn't realise I was this close to a building site when I started recording this. As usual, I'd like to thank Arts Council England, specifically the southwest of England office, for their continued support of the podcast, and Snazzy Rat for the series intro and outro music. You can find more from him on Bandcamp. I'll be back at the end of September with episode 118, which will possibly, just possibly, be an interview with me about the history of Lunar Poetry Podcasts, as it will be our birthday episode. Four years old. But that's only if I can get over the embarrassment of editing myself. Either way, I'll speak to you in September. Much love. <laughs>